I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hi there, it's Jeremy Scheinwald with another Smart People Should Build Things Venture for America podcast. Today on the show, we have Amal Sarva. He's a man of many identities. He launched Peak, which was uh, like a stripped-down BlackBerry years ago, and got wide user adoption and acclaim from Oprah, Time Magazine, and more, as you'll hear on the show. Now he's on the cutting edge via Halo Neuroscience, which is pioneering the use of a non-invasive neurostimulation technology to unlock cognitive brain power. You'd think he's a hardcore tech guy, but he has a PhD in philosophy from Stanford. He also has an eye for art and design. He has a photo in MoMA's perm- permanent collection and also led the development of a 20,000-square-foot residential building that echoes some of the bronze sculptures of Richard Serra. He's been an advisor, too, and launched many companies, as you'll hear. Please join us as we try, try to unlock the riddle that is Amal Sarva. Thanks so much for being here, Amal. Uh, really, like... Fascinating story as I, as I looked into uh, some of your history. You have a, a PhD in philosophy, a photo in, in the MoMA's permanent exhibit or collection. Uh, you sold and advised several companies, built a 20,000 square foot building in Queens. Um, like, how did you. I think you got the wrong Wikipedia page for this one. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just oh. screwing around with you, sir. <laughs> I don't think I, I, wish this was t- I wish this was TV so you could see my face <laughs> go white. Hilarious. Oh, my God. That's, that is hilarious. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Amal Sarva yeah. in the entire world, actually. That's <laughs> such a short name. Oh, boy. Okay. Whew, back on track here. <laughs> why, like, how do you... Uh, uh, this is sort of a, a weird, like, why aren't you? But, like, you know, because because you've chosen a path where you've been quite successful. Like, why aren't you, you know, a photographer or an architect or even a professor or any number of other things because you seem to have many talents oh wow that's a weird way to get started um yeah i don't that's know i mean interview yet. You've, you've, you've <laughs> bad research that i'm starting with weird questions <laughs> i'm outraged that you would say no i mean that's a fascinating and uh, interesting question and actually it's it's uh what's surprising is that it it is unusual because i think many entrepreneurs actually are like super creative people and see themselves that way they see themselves. I mean, I was just, you know, someone posed this exact question to a room of 50 entrepreneurs 10 days ago. And the question was like, oh, you know, we're here listening to some artists talk. How many of you folks in the room think of yourselves as like deeply committed and involved in the arts and creative work? And almost every single person in the room raised their hand. Hmm. And I definitely think that about myself. I think my work is creative work, actually. And it's not that different from making art or, um, you know, music or or any other creative discipline. So, when so like you know, you're, you, the way you pose it is why why are I not why am I not doing that? I sort of think I am actually. Right, but uh, you know, could you? I mean, could you have dedicated your life to you know to 
photography and and could, I mean could that have been a viable path for you could you or, or some other some one of these other paths like yeah. you know I um, I mean I almost became a philosopher right I was uh, like I did the whole thing like I was even you know interviewing for jobs at universities a little bit and um, I I didn't. I, the and the reason I didn't is I think this is similar things are true for a lot of other related, um, more uh, sort of like solo creative uh, enterprises, and it's just that it is not very fast. Like you don't actually like have uh, an urgent task list each day, <laughs> and when you do everything, like, nothing seems to happen very quickly. Right. So those two qualities um, are very different in the world of, of company building and entrepreneurship, and, I'm, you know, maybe it's just personality stuff, like the way people are wired in their rhythms and what they're used to and prefer, but, uh, I, you know, when I got to graduate school in philosophy, I, I really liked philosophy, and I really liked, you know, the problems we worked on and the way we did the work and thinking, and I had the kind of self-discipline to spend long periods of time concentrating on hard stuff, but... Uh, I really didn't like that you more or less worked alone, that you worked really slowly on one thing at a time, and that when you were done, pretty much nobody really cared about it. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people in the arts have a cycle like that. I mean, there's a really a tiny slice of folks who are, like, at this kind of effervescent boiling point of unbelievable, you know, fame and all that, but you can't design your whole, you know, expectation of your career to be like the most famous artist in the world, which is probably fun. I mean, that's probably super fun. Right. Well, it seems like it seems like you you you, you balance that PhD um, where you were at Stanford uh, with some of the slowness of, <laughs> of that experience with with some some pretty impressive speed. Like you were director of business development at, at Gobi during that time, um, and then a founder of Virgin Wireless. This is while you were at Stanford, right? Like yeah. Like, well, I mean, did you get a well, class, I mean, you get a class at all? Like, yeah. were you, were like when did you work on your? Were you working on like a part-time PhD at night while, while helping to launch Virgin Wireless? The, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess um, graduate school has, is like pretty flexible in um, when you have to be places and do things. And so, yeah, a lot of the time I was sort of moonlighting on, on other projects. And sometimes I even was off for like six months from school at a time. Right. Just gone working on like that startup called Gobi where we were basically giving out free computers. It was 1999. We were like, hey, sign up for our internet and you can have a free computer. It didn't work out very well, but it was a formative and interesting experience. And it totally set me up for what we did with Virgin Mobile. Virgin Mobile was the, almost the exact same thing. The whole cell phone business is giving you a, a free small computer to pay some kind of monthly right. fee to do stuff. And um, that the reason I got involved with that and because was because of what we had done with with Gobi and what I had learned about how to to do that kind of marketing and analysis. Um, and yeah, it totally started as like a little bit of a sideline. You know, I just went and met a guy. He's like, "Hey, I want to start a mobile phone company." I'm like, "Oh, hmm, maybe I can like carve out a little time the next few weeks and I'll do a little thing and then see if we want to work on it more together." And that developed and developed and developed. And Virgin was an investor in Sprint, and it became a really big business. And by the end, that's all I was doing. And I had to go back and finish writing my dissertation after after Virgin Mobile. So, so speed the dissertation. Can you just like dumb it down for us? Because I, I wrote this down. You got a, a and, and I know I've got the right I'm all Sorry, sorry. Uh, so you, it's a concept of modularity and cognitive science. Can you can you uh, can you can you make that bite size for, uh, for yeah the lay, for the layman here? For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's I have. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a super simple idea actually. The brain has parts and they talk to each other. That's a thing we now know about the way the brain works, and. Um, 
that has a bunch of much more sort of technical and theoretical problems that it raises for other theories about how the mind works. And my dissertation was just about that. It's like, okay, chapter one, the brain has parts, and they talk to each other. We know that now. Chapter two, there's some people who say the brain works this way. Well, if it has parts, then it can't quite work that way. You know, chapter three, four, five. So essentially... Uh, I was just exploring some of the recent implications in the way people learn how the mind works. And I, it, it's super interesting. I mean, everybody, uh, I'm sure, has a little bit of interest in just how the brain and the mind work. It's very topical these days, just in science and tech, and there's a lot of popular interest in it. And that was more or less why I did it. I was just, I just, I just was, I found it really rewarding. But it did put me in touch with some amazing people and ideas. And has had a big implication in, in what I'm what I'm doing now. Like one of the companies I'm building right now is like a direct straight line from the stuff we uh, we learned about back then to Halo. Yeah, Halo Neuroscience. Okay. Yeah, I mean this company that um, I started with um, a friend of mine a couple of years ago is a hardcore neuroscience company. Like only a tiny fraction of people on the planet had ever heard about the type of technology that we uh, have been developing. And I first heard about it when I was in grad school. Like, I read some random article about some guy who had some really out there theory, and he was developing some kind of technique. Uh, the guys in my department all said it was nonsense, could never work. Paper seemed very unserious. It was some Australian physicist who had published a paper about making people uh, better at art through some kind of brain stimulation. Like, he had some cap that he would put on you. Is that just like is that just like academic snobbery? Had that guy come out of Stanford where they've been like, this guy's a genius? I think there was a bit of it. I mean, that's why I tell you he's from Australia. Right. So everyone's automatically like, well, he's kind of at the periphery of some of the neuroscience <laughs> stuff. And all the Stanford right. guys took themselves very seriously. They're right. great philosophers from, from Australia. They're well-regarded. And, you know, Australia's well-regarded. But still, just being from right. Australia means he might be a little weird. And he's a <laughs> physicist. He's not a psychologist right. or neuroscientist. And he had this really goofy, hard-to-quantify result, which is about, like, drawing pictures well. So they were like, yeah, whatever, it's probably not real. You know, the way people sort of dismiss a lot of possibly interesting science. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of a student. I thought it was interesting, and I just sort of left it for a long time. And uh, after my last company in 2012, um, I was just thinking of the, the most interesting and most potentially you know, powerful ideas I'd ever heard of. And, th and that one had stuck with me for a really long time. I started looking into it. And it turns out, in the decades since I had been exposed to those ideas, the field had actually developed. It had gone from like this one slightly zany dude to a field of a few dozen people who had published a few hundred papers, some really interesting stuff that I could maybe even make myself now, because in the intervening decade, I had done all this like mobile phone and tech and gadgets and all that, and I was no longer uh, nervous about electronics. Like I felt like I could make very complicated technology products. So I was like, yeah, you know, if this thing kind of works, maybe it's a maybe that's like the next smartphone. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's like a brain gadget that somehow I don't know. So I I, I got some of the papers, I read them, uh, I called around for some friends who might be able to help me a little bit, and we made a prototype device that can stimulate your brain and make your brain work better. And we tried it out right. on me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you're smarter? <laughs> <laughs> if anything, it's probably a temporary effect. But we, um, the first couple trials we did, like, we really had no clue how to use it or where to put it. Like, Okay, let's it didn't back even up occur here, to us I mean, to use the, the give battery. The, give us the visual of like, like what, it, what are you putting? And is this like right on science fiction? You're putting nodes on someone's head? and Yeah, like electrodes on different parts of your head. And um, you design a certain circuit to keep too much energy from flowing through the, the electrodes. 
and I freaking I just like plugged it into a wall. Like I literally got like a, a wall adapter that people use for cell phones, and like just snipped off the cell phone adapter and rewired the stuff to so some like, 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 like a, a homemade brain stimulator. Pretty much, yeah, like, pretty much, yeah. I mean, we just like got ourselves plugged like, into a wall. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we got like a little excited about it. I wanted to. I thought there was no point in just like reading five more papers. We should just see if we can get a result by fooling around with the technology a little bit. I convinced myself and my colleague, uh, his name is Lee, uh, we convinced ourselves that it was probably pretty safe, you know? Mm. In retrospect, it's, 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 I mean, even at the time, it was a little foolish, but... Uh, yeah, so then we went to Radio Shack and we just bought a bunch of stuff. We took out our scissors. We had a desk full of all these gadgets. We had a few little lights on the thing to try to test it and make sure, you know, give ourselves some feeling that we had sort of done it right. It took hours to even just get this very simple circuit right because neither of us is an actual electrical engineer. We just had sort of hobbyists expertise. Right. And the very first time I tried it, um, I thought we had like shorted out all the lights in the office. So like I, we turn it on and everything just goes completely. Pitch, pitch actually goes perfectly white. And I'm like, shit, oh, I can't see anything. What happened? The lights must have just like completely gone freaked out. A few seconds later, um, the lights are okay. So I'm like, okay. So Lee, you know, is this thing working? And he's like, yeah, it seems to be working. So I wait a little while. And then after a few minutes, I'm like, okay, let's, let's turn it off. So he does something and I go, I go blind again. And I'm like, Lee, did, did, you, did, you, did we just like mess up the lights? Did you see that? And he's like, no, I didn't see anything. What are you talking about? And it's because when he, I, I, he had actually, we had sent like a big blast of energy straight through my optic nerve, and I had blinded myself for a few seconds by the time, was, which was a little bit scary. That was kind of. <laughs> <laughs> this is a story I, I have yet to hear on this podcast. What? Uh, <laughs> so how did you how did you determine that this was a net positive experience? That this was something that like well, actually you know, did make you more cognitively sharp? Oh like, man! Wow, was on your head afterwards. Well, I mean, not. at first it was just that. At first, I would just wanted to be sure I wasn't like injured. Right. Um, but I mean, with a little more perspective and context and understanding of what had happened, we had used a very low amount of energy. That was the plan. And um, we had designed the circuit right. Everything was cool. But we more or less just shot it from, like, temple to temple, if you imagine, just, like, putting one electrode on each of your temples. Right. Well, the shortest path between those is just, like, straight through right behind your eyes, which is where your optic nerve goes. Right. If you send a little energy into your optic nerve, you're going to see some stars or some lights or whatever. If you whack yourself on the head or, like, there's a lot of other ways you can create this kind of uh, optical illusion or visual um, uh, impairment for just it'll be brief and it really doesn't have any long term effect whatever I, no, don't do it at home it's not like I'm advocating but it was no big deal it's how many fingers, how many fingers am I holding up right uh, I still can't even see you <laughs> so it was no big deal and it didn't have any benefit but in the months afterwards we tinkered with the location and duration and the waveform and the electromagnetic field and all this stuff and we started producing some really amazing results can you tell us about those or is that I mean, confidential at this point I mean it, it, it'll trend into the confidential territory but some of the first things we did is we like played video games and beat them all oh really like it was very amazing yeah <laughs> it was very amazing it was very amazing and when we started doing that that's insane we were like wow that's I mean, that because that kind of science usually doesn't work. When you do science, as my um, one of my colleagues says, like the basic axiom to take when you're working on like cutting edge technology is that it's probably not going to work. Right. You're going to just try it, and it's not going to work. It's like when I blinded, you know. But then, like the next trial, I got five high scores in a row in some crazy game, and it's like, I mean, could it be placebo? Maybe. Like we, our very first trials were not super rigorous. Over time, we became a lot more rigorous in what we were doing, and, and um, we were able to narrow in on some interesting stuff. Um, 
and it was just working right from the beginning. So it's a super powerful, like really interesting technology. What, what is the like? What's the long term like? Is, is, this, is this a consumer product? Is this like a like? What's the what's what's the vision for how this how this yeah, plays out? Yeah, well, I mean, it has vast potential. Like, I won't get into the whole like, what are we going to do with it exactly? But right. we, um, yeah, I mean, if you could build a technology that could make your brain work better, you have to do it. Right. I mean, there are so many ways that the brain is involved in all the important things we do, all the things we want to do, all our highest aspirations. If you could improve brain function for climate researchers and cancer scientists, if you could improve um, you know, the speed of learning for you know, whatever kids from every different socioeconomic class or you know, folks working on the, the most cutting-edge problems, like it's, that's, you, you have, I mean, you have to do it. And then for everybody, like who wouldn't want to improve the way they just do their most important stuff? Thinking right. is, you know, it's, it's even more than, ordinarily, your average kind of um, man on the street would say thinking's important, but thinking's even more important than they realize. The, the cognition, like all the different stuff that falls into cognition, that's learning and it's math and arithmetic and it's memory and long-term memory, short-term memory, visual processing, reaction time, motor function, skill, power, endurance, all those things are controlled by your brain. It's amazing hmm. the range of stuff you can connect with, your mood and your concentration, your focus. Right. A new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So is this, I mean, is this your, this, you know, looking at your, at your, not Wikipedia page, but about <laughs> me, your LinkedIn, other articles about you, the, uh, is this your, I mean, is this, is this your, I mean, you're doing a lot of stuff still. Is this your main focus? I mean, is this, is this a, is there a nine to five for you at, uh, at, at, uh, at Halo? Uh, Halo is a huge part of the, of, of what I work on, um, every day, but it is the minority of what I do. I, my co-founder in the company, uh, Dan Chow is a super amazing guy and he's the CEO all the people report to him he has a little bit more of a hardcore technical background in uh, the neuroscience than I do like he's actually an MD he actually has a master's in neuroscience he spent 10 or 12 years at this really big med tech company that makes uh, real medical devices I was making like smartphones for playing games and texting friends but he's been working on 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 some of the real neuroscience so when he and I came together to start working on this um, it was a very uh, we are compliments in a lot of um, the skills we've developed over the last. So, like, I actually keep coming back to this, like, yeah. really d- this diversity of things that you're working on at, at a time, and it's it's really interesting to me. Uh, someone has a pretty short attention span himself, and uh, and but one thing that, like, sort of to me, like, is is an interesting potential deviation from that is that when you finish your PhD, you go to McKinsey, which to me is like I think known to be all-consuming, although you did still have one or two other things on the go at the time, but, um, you know, very structured, not a lot of room for that kind of yeah. dabbling and flexibility. How, why did you Why did you make that choice to go to McKinsey, and, and what did you get out of yeah, it? Yeah, well, I, I, uh, when I finished, um, I, I, the time, I joined McKinsey in 2003, like uh, middle of 2003, and uh, I was thinking maybe I should start another company. I was like... I had moved to Paris. I was like finishing off my dissertation and waiting for my my advi- like my board of whatever they're called to read it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I was just kind of screwing around, and I was like, all right, well, you know, I need to, like, get to my next thing. What am I going to work on? What do I want to do? And I was... Um, I was thinking I should start a company, but I, I didn't think I was qualified, really, to start a company. It sounds weird. Like, I had started, I had been part of, you know, I was the junior guy. Like, my co-founder was really the serious guy at Virgin Mobile. He's 10 years older than me. He had done a bunch of things in business. And although it was his first startup, he was sort of a more together dude. And while uh, I feel I had a, you know, a pretty good role in, in what we did at Virgin Mobile, I was, like, dragged along, you know? It was, it was cool to be there. It was my privilege. And... Um, we definitely made some mistakes in what we were doing. And so in 2003, when I was, uh, you know, I'd been at Virgin for four years, I'd vested, I'd left, and I was sort of on the beach, and I was finishing off my dissertation thinking about coming back. And uh, I was like, maybe I shouldn't start a company yet. Uh, it was still the post-crash uh, from 2001. Things weren't so hot. And I think that was totally wrong, but that was the reason why I, I went to, to McKinsey. I was like, well, you know, it's a good place, all these great people. I just finished my dissertation, so they so I looked to them like one of their typical kind of, you know, recruits into the postgraduate kind of program. I'll get back to New York. I'll kind of get myself sorted out. I had been previously in San Francisco and in, in, and in Europe, and, and I'll sort of get rolling. But it turned out McKinsey was great. I mean, McKinsey was really good. There, there were amazing people who worked there. Right. And um, that was the most rewarding thing about the whole experience. So I didn't have a lot of hobbies, that's true. Right. While I was But yet you still found the time to start Blue Mobile at the, at the, at while you were while you were at McKinsey, right? Is that Yeah. Well, and, I was still talking was, to my old co-founder from Virgin, this guy John Tantum, and uh, our con our dialogue had continued, you know, pretty much uninterrupted. And uh, yeah, at some stage I was like, okay, so, let's go. So that's with him. Blue Mobile is with him yeah. and you guys raised like eighteen million dollars and, and yeah. what was what was what was Blue Mobile? Yeah. And how was it different than yeah, it was well, basically Virgin Mobile. It was supposed okay. to be Virgin Mobile just again. And uh, and it even had its own crazy uh, European billionaire involved. The Virgin Mobile stuff, the main as it guy should, was as obviously... It sorry? As it should, as it should. Right, as all good adventures. So, yeah, so Richard Branson was, uh, you know, a very famous dude. But then when we did um, Blue Mobile, my co-founder, John, just, like, called a guy after seeing his profile in Business Week. He was uh, an entrepreneur who had built a big mobile phone business in Ireland. His name is Dennis O'Brien. And he just, like, phoned him up and said, hey, you did a mobile phone business in Ireland. You're doing one in the Caribbean with all these different island countries where you got these licenses. What do you say? You want to do one in the U.S.? And the guy's like, yeah, perfect. That's exactly what I've been looking for. I'll meet you at the Teterboro Airport, like, in two days or something. And it was this crazy, uh, like, I think it was only, like, nine or 12 months or something that we were even working on the thing. We were just, like, burning money like crazy. The guy was, was very loose in his thinking and... Um, process. So he just invested tons of money, said, go do all this stuff. And everything was going amazing. We signed a deal with Verizon to be our partner um, to launch the phones in Walmart. So we were like 99% of the way to doing Virgin Mobile. Because Virgin Mobile, the, the two hard things when we did that, one was to get a partnership with Sprint and to get them to invest. The other part was to get our launch partners, our retailers, ready to go. Because in those days, that's where you would find stuff. You'd find stuff in stores. Now, no right. one goes to stores. But then we got Best Buy to invest, and we got Target to launch our product. So we were all over the country in these amazing stores. Everyone saw us. It was a sensation. MTV was involved. And so when we did Blue Mobile, we were like, all right, let's go get all that stuff again. And it, we, we did it. We got Verizon, and we got Walmart. And we're like, this is good. We're going to be the even cheaper, less sexy, like, you know, burner phone that everyone will buy. And um, at the like, last minute, um, I learned why um, working for these billionaires is a pain in the ass. So he uh, won an auction for a, 
a wireless license in Fiji, like in the South Pacific. So he had done it in Ireland, some islands, he had done it in the Caribbean, some islands, and he had put his name in to win some like new operating territories, and he, he got them. And uh, he's like, oh, all right, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the South Pacific. This thing in the U.S., forget it. I'm done. He just pulled the funding. Yeah, he, I mean, the money was spent. He just like, but it's a little inelegant when you like get all the way to building a business and then have like no more money. It's very difficult right. to go go raise go raise money for that. Did you guys try, or did you just let it let uh, it go well, after that? Oh well, we yeah, we, I mean, we took a crack at it, but I, I, it's not it's not an easy thing to do. If you, um, I mean, there's a long con- convoluted. Uh, set of things about the way the venture capital world works and, and early stage companies work but yeah I mean it, it, it just wasn't a, it wasn't practical like the, the guy had put us on this path where we were spending shitloads of money every month and a super aggressive path where the plan was we were going to spend 50 to 100 million dollars and we spent right. a big chunk of the way into it you can't just turn on a dime and turn it into like a more traditional VC backed like miserly effort where you put in a few million and get some big result and then a few million more like he had done right. we were sort of set up to, to run out of cash so we found some other smaller wireless operator to buy the business from us and we just left it and let them try to develop it they never, they never took it very far but that experience with Blue Mobile I, I realized okay there is a reason why the venture world works a certain way, the kind of um, uh, like the single high net worth backer is a very fickle mm. kind of backer. It's not if you want to be like a professional entrepreneur, uh, it's better to work within the the venture system than it is to like go find some person who might change their mind or get sick or have some wacky thing happen. Someone who's so completely lopsided in their power dynamic with you that you right. can just get hosed. Right. That's interesting, and so um, and so obviously, like mobile and, and wireless is starting to become a theme in your life. You, you, you yeah. soon after start Peak, which is, um, yeah. I mean, why didn't why don't I let you? I'm not gonna put words in your mouth. I mean, tell us about tell us about Peak, what it was intended to be. And, yeah, and, well, uh, Peak. I mean, Peak was on our mind the whole time we were working on Blue Mobile, um, and that it came right out of Blue Mobile. Like, so we were we were working on Blue, and in order to build a business that sort of met the aims that. That this that this uh, this guy O'Brien had in mind to like be a big like it was kind of an ego thing for him, and so every time we had like a sensible kind of market launch plan, he, he wanted us to make it bigger. So the only way to meet his kind of ego aims was to do something really broad and low cost and and sort of mass market. Um, but there was a technology changeover happening in two thousand six and seven. It was about to happen, which was to smartphones. And so that's what was on our mind. You know, I was, when I was, for example, when I was working at McKinsey, I would leave my office, and whatever time of day I left my office, whether it was at 4 p.m. or 10 p.m., I would walk from uh, 53rd and Park to the subway. And in that particular part of the, of the world, every person you saw was just walking like a zombie looking at a Blackberry with both thumbs on the screen. And I noticed this, and I just thought it was so amazing. I mean, today that's like everywhere, every corner, every spot. <laughs> I was going to say, as they know? are now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I saw that, and I'm like, that, that's, everyone's going to do that. Like, I really felt that that, and so I did some analysis. We, you know, partly because of my um, consulting, like, access to, to research, there were only a handful of people in the world that had uh, Blackberries. I, I mean, people remember Blackberry, but in 2006, there were only 6 million Blackberries in the entire world out of 6 billion people. And 6 million Blackberries it's just like, it's really nothing. I mean, there were probably another 4 million Palm devices or 6 million, I don't know, some smallish number. And uh, it was just like insanely, 
it, it, it seems so clear that there would be a total mass market, the prices would come low, much lower, and one day everybody would have these things and they would do all the internet stuff, especially email. Like the thing that really gripped me about about email is that that was the thing that was really gluing people to the internet in 2005, six, seven, and over time that has changed to some other stuff. So as um, O'Brien was was walking away from Blue Mobile, I was like, fine, whatever. This thing had gone badly awry already. It was clear in the you know as we were going along that that, that Blue was uh, in a ill-fated journey. Uh, but John and I looked at each other and were like, cool, great, let's get out of this thing and start a real company that has a real opportunity that we see clearly and uses some of the same nuts and bolts that we've used in what we did with Virgin Mobile. Let's take a, um, an, an, inev an inevitable mass market technology and make it mass market. It's expensive, it's hard to get, you know, business people have it right now. That was like 99, 2000 with cell phones, like just the loud talking salesman on a cell phone. Well, now everyone has cell phones. So in 2006 and 7, we're like, all right, there's some of these like fancy people in big cities that have uh, email and internet gadgets. Let's make an email or an internet gadget that everyone can afford. What would that take? And so we rethought the whole gadget, um, the whole phone, um, and we redesigned it from scratch to be 90% uh, less costly. So we made a device that only cost $30 mm -hmm. that had a nice big screen and keyboard on it, and it worked on the wireless network. and. Um, it did email and it did push email in real time, which was like a big deal at the time. And you could do texting on it and Twitter and get Facebook alerts and stuff over over time. And so, like, we we invented something really cool, something something quite neat. And we had to build a bunch of software to make it do that. That's what Peak was about. And so we raised some venture for that, um, and we developed the technology further. We got Target again on board, that big retailer. We got T-Mobile as one of the partners, and uh, we launched it in 2008, uh, uh, September 12, 2008. Uh, to like rave reviews, the New York Times <coughs> was, review, uh, all that. Oprah's one of Oprah's favorite things. Uh, it was all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I got I got a, I got a couple of Time Magazine's gadget of the year in 2008 when Time Magazine was uh, was still it was a it was, thing. It's almost like when BlackBerry was a thing when Time when Time was. Yeah, a thing, yeah, it was like a changeover from the past era to the present era. Yeah. And by the way, September 12, 2008, when I'm watching at like noon on Power Lunch on CNBC when they're going to feature our gadget and our PR people had told us we're going to be like the headline beautiful gadget that they're um, glowing about. Uh, that happened to be the, the same day that Lehman Brothers was was mm. collapsing and that every other headline was like, the world is over, the world is over, the world is over. And now right. in other news, check out this cool new gadget that you could buy with <laughs> all that extra money you have. <laughs> so it created a very difficult uh, macro for, for when we launched. So 2008, 9, 10 were insane for everybody in, on the planet, but especially for VC-backed companies. It was it was sick. And then, I mean, but, but Peak, Peak had some success. Like, what was Peak at its peak? Well, we, you know, in the beginning, and like our, our, our claim to fame is just selling tons of devices, and we booked a lot of revenue, much more revenue than most startups that I know, uh, just getting people signed up to use our mobile devices with internet. They were all around the US. We launched in Europe. We launched in India. We, la we had launch partners in other countries. And we were really rolling. But as the, the sort of financial crisis was getting uh, more and more severe and enduring, we were like, OK, there's no way we're going to be able to grow very big because we have to spend for every customer we grow. We're going to have to, like, it's, we'll never get there. We'll, what we should probably do is just drop making the devices, which had been the thing that made us famous, like this beautiful gadget we made. We'll drop that. We'll take all the technology we developed, and we'll license it to the guys who make these horrible garbage devices that come from China, all these Huawei's and ZTEs and stuff. Because the trend of uh, 2008 to 2012, apart from the rise of Apple, 
was the the death of all the old school cell phone brands. Like Motorola used to be like a huge brand, and right. it more or less went to zero in that period. All that oxygen was not taken by Apple. Apple sells a lot of phones and the very valuable phones, but the volume of phones during that time was taken by all these guys from China, like ZTE and Huawei and all these names that aren't even very important names. Well, you could see them if you, if you pay attention around even in the U.S. market. So we started licensing our software to those guys, and that turned out to be a real, a real business for us. So some of these giant companies, you hear about them now because they've gotten so big. There's this one called Xiaomi in, um, in China. It's like a $50 billion startup that everyone sells these cheap Android phones that are really nice. And there's one in India called Micromax, which is pretty similar. Companies like that were licensing our software to make their kind of crappy phones work better. And then in the end of 2012, one of the companies that had licensed our stuff bought the company. It was called SoftBank, Bharti SoftBank. SoftBank has a joint venture in India called Bharti SoftBank. It's a partnership with one of the big operators there. And they wanted to launch all these internet apps. Uh, they wanted to do like a chat app that was similar to WhatsApp and stuff. And so they licensed our platform. And then a year later, they, they bought the entire platform for us. And they built a really huge product. It's called Hike. And Hike has like 150 million users or something. So it's like this really, so it it's kind of cool. Yeah, like the peak technology is built into one of the largest messaging platforms in the world. It's great. And, and, and by the way, while we were working on all that stuff in Asia, we had this team of amazing engineers in, in New York. And we were trying to like just think of what should we do with them. So uh, we met this guy, Dom Hoffman, and we built Vine and launched it. And when Dom's company, Vine, which wow. was just him and like one guy, got bought by Twitter, our people were all optioned to to Twitter. So wow. when my so when Barthes Hoffman got got our um, got our business, we did a side deal with the, the people. And so then at this sort of fall of 2012, December 2012, I'm like, it's all done. Right. You know, the Indians have what they want, and <laughs> you know, the Twitter people. And I had this big office on 17th Street with no people, and I'm like, all right, I guess I should think of something new to do. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is smart people should build things the venture for america podcast a show about entrepreneurs and their stories i want to go back though because i'm curious because you, you said like you know you just the, the, the funding environment was such that that it just—it wasn't realistic for you to for you to raise the kind of money that it would take. But I mean, assuming you know the times were like they were today, like they are today, you know, let's say I mean you, know, you could have gone out and done some wild raise of a hundred million dollars. I mean, was it a money problem? Could you have made it? I mean, would would Peak be around today? Or, or I mean, it? if you look at some of the businesses that are there now. I mean, that was all right. That was what we were doing. Like, we were well on our way on what they do. So, like, Xiaomi uh, is this Chinese company started by the guy who used to be the head of, of Google in China. And I, I forget what year. Maybe it was, like, 2012 that he started it. But he was like, why is there not an Apple in China? I'm going to work with all the Chinese ecosystem to make phones, but I'm going to make really cool-looking ones instead of the crappy ones they make. I'm going to put my software on it, license Android, and modify it. And then I'm going to sell cool phones. Well, that was that was all right. That's what we did. I mean, Android didn't exist in 2008 when we started, but we used like whatever the leading edge stuff was at the time. We made a beautiful thing. We're on the covers of every magazine and on every TV show. We made like the gorgeous It device. Um, 
so I, you know, like, is they were definitely they're definitely amazing at what they do, and they were definitely targeting a different region and stuff than what we did. So this is by no means inevitable that we could right. pulled all that off. But it's like the timing made a huge difference. Like they were launching right into this like roaring China liquidity market, and they raised you know fifty on two hundred before they started. Then they mm-hmm. raised another one hundred on a billion three months later, and then they raised five hundred on five billion seven months later. So the access to capital for those dudes was definitely a big part. Because to build a business like that, it is super capital intensive. Yeah. When we did Virgin Mobile, we raised five hundred and fifty million dollars before we launched. And so that was like in the period right after, like overlapping with and right after the the, the initial dot com crash. So it was two thousand one. Mm-hmm. That was an insane amount of money. We spent like a few million in the early, super early stage of development, but to launch it, we just like we raised a mountain of money. So that was huge. Then when we did um, peak, our plan, like our business plan, was let's raise an initial round of ten million. So the Series A. I mean, entrepreneurs who are, who are listening to us talk. In the present environment, people do not raise on a PowerPoint ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. Like you, there's many steps: the seed, the pre-seed, the angel. Like there's so many steps. But we raised on a PowerPoint ten million dollars with a plan to raise another ten or fifteen, and then to raise fifty, and then to raise a hundred. And like the fully funded plan for us to be like a major U.S. player would have been a lot of money. Like it's not even. It just. I mean, it's an old school business compared to the internet businesses people now run too, right? Like, there's a cost of acquisition. You have to spend twenty-five to fifty dollars to get a customer, and right. some of that's like paid to target, and some of that's ads, and some of that's here and there and whatever. So, even if you have an amazing business that pays back quickly and is very profitable, you're going to have to plow a bunch of cash in to get big. And so, the reality about Peak and in that macro, I mean, I'm convinced a big part of it was was the. Um, just you know the collapsing overall environment people were running away from everything there was definitely other things i mean strategically speaking the incredible success of apple and how badly android competed with them was a problem for us as well android went to free between 2008 and 2010 right and it's like you know so google was basically just giving away free phones that do tons of stuff Right. With their various partners. Tough to compete with free. Yeah, it was very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> very annoying with the smile. You just get this like tremendous visual uh, of uh, of you know kind of like okay you're you're you sell off your technology your people kind of move into Vine and Twitter and you did the you know the, I think everyone can understand what I'm what I'm doing here with the with the with the sound but you know the wiping your hands uh, like. Does, was it that clean, or did you? Were you just like, okay, I got nothing to do today. I'm just starting over. Or was there, were there, were there 15 projects on, on the go right away? How much time did you take off? Basically, is what I'm asking. In yeah. a neater and tidier way, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I started to. I mean, when the deal was coming together um, for Peak, I uh, could could tell, and. Uh, I mean, it was like a much appreciated opportunity to switch gears and think about some new stuff, you know. Um, so it was like super energizing, you know. Like I would sign the last stuff in some part, like early December or whatever, and I, I definitely changed my um, rhythms a bit. Like our, our office, I uh, we canceled the lease and I just took it again in my own name with because I was friendly with the landlord, and it was a pretty big office, like a. 6,000 square foot floor of a nice building in 17th Street downtown near Union Square. And uh, I just set up some friends' companies in there. So then they were there. So I got out of it. And I, I, just, like, I like joined a club and I would just go sit in the club <laughs> and like relax and read the internet and write emails. And um, 
think about things that I wanted to work on. And I started making a list of ideas that I thought were interesting ideas uh, from a, a diverse um, grouping. It was like they just, you know, they, they uh, I had a few, I guess, I wanted them to be big. I wanted them to be uh, doable now, but they didn't have to be all in one family of technologies. So there was an assortment of different stuff that I was thinking about. And Halo was one of the things that was on my list. So probably for a few months, even before December 2012, I w it was on my list, and I was starting to think about it and look at it. Um, but the, And that experiment, the anecdote I told you about, might have been like December 23rd, 2012 or something. Right. I forget the exact day. Um, and I had a few other ideas that I was kicking around that I was starting to develop and prototype and, and think about as well. And one of them became Notable. Notable right. is, is probably the, the, the biggest use of my time and energy for the last couple of years. So, so okay, so Notable is, is what you were, you, you kind of said, like Halo, the, one of your co-founders kind of maybe committing more of his time to leadership. Yeah, I mean, no, my co-founder runs it, right? So for him, okay. it's like wall-to-wall, -wall and uh, he's an amazing guy, and he, he's doing really well with it. Um, and I support him in that. Uh, so Notable, uh, I'm on the hook for every little thing that goes on. So I'm the CEO, all the people report to me. And that's a different set of obligations than... So t tell us about Notable. Do you have to give us the background on this? Yeah. I mean, Notable is an app for working together. So it's software. So unlike all my previous ex adventures with gadgets, there's no gadget involved with Notable. Notable is an internet company. We make you know some apps for phones and stuff and internet, a web app. And um, it is a way to take notes and share them. And that's it. I mean, it's for this world where uh, everybody's like moving around, working in different places, different time zones, not together. Um, and in this world, we're working on ideas, information, things we need to move around. And there's tons of emerging technologies the last few years for this kind of collaboration, right? Like the age of Microsoft ended a few years ago when mm -hmm. we were all like sending email attachments with like Excel spreadsheets. So that's over. And we now live in an age where there's a bunch of really specific apps where you work together. Like you use Dropbox and you send files. You use this task manager like Asana or something to assign the task to me. Uh, and then you switch into like a Google Hangout and we have a video chat and then we switch again into um, Calendar or I don't know. There's just all these like things that are completely detached from each other. But if I ask you like, hey, how'd the podcast go? Like, it's not in any one place. It's in, like, 50 different places. There's, like, right. an email and a meeting maker and all that. And so our thought with Notable was, like, there's got to be some way to, like, wrangle this mess of different stuff. Like, you're not going to, like, go into Slack and search and then go over to GitHub and look for the commit and then go back to Asana and then find the file. Like, it'd be nice if there was a way to just drop a wide diversity of stuff into one kind of thing. So the idea of, like, a piece of paper or a room that you're in is, like, a really old-school sort of comforting metaphor um, but we were thinking, okay, let's make, so Notable is an, lets you make notepads, which you, know, you make like a, a link, it's like a web page or it's a screen in your app. And a notepad, you can just drop any kind of thing in it. So you can write some words, great, you can take some notes, that's cool. Um, you can put some files in or take pictures or you can copy links from the internet and it sucks in the stuff from the internet in there. Make some tasks or put a deadline on something. Um, so you get a lot of different stuff, you can drag it around, you can keep editing it so it's dynamic, it's not just like a repo. And uh, you can put people on it. So I could put you on a notepad about this podcast, and then you might send a link and drop it in there, and I could listen to it, and I'd reply and comment on there, and then you'd be like, okay, cool, let me delete that one, and I'll put the next revision on here. And we can work on it together and keep moving it forward in this little notepad for this one little project. Like, it would be kind of overkill if you and me made, like, a whole base camp or, like, mm. some project <laughs> Gantt or something for just, like, you know, recording and editing one session. But it isn't crazy that there might be 
a little bit more of a sticky kind of organized space for all our diverse projects. And a little bit, it speaks to my own background, right? Like the stuff I do, I work on a lot of different stuff. I'm not sitting and working on one thing linearly. And I think it is reflective of people's increasingly like freelance, 24-7, um, mobile, multi-time zone uh, work. Everyone's doing that. And uh, Notable is a tool for this world where there's tons of different services, tons of different scattered collaborators. You get one page, lots of stuff, look at, look at the same page. I'm curious, like, you've had such a, like, you've had exits and you've had some businesses shut down and you've had, you know, like, big venture back companies. But, I mean, it's such a, you know, a lot of exciting companies here. I'm, don't worry, I'm going somewhere. And, uh, <laughs> and, like, how do you find the energy to, to, to bring it to, to the, you know, each day to the next, to, to, to Notable, to start over again? And wh where does it come from? Do you have any trouble motivating? That's interesting. Uh... I really like the stuff I work on, man. Yeah. I, um, but do you feel like your intensity level is the same as it as it as it was? Is it is it is that linear? Is that or is that is that a planar? I guess I don't know. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I really like what I work on. It's it's it, you know um, I left consulting. Uh, McKinsey was a great place full of interesting people, but I really didn't like the things I was working on. I didn't feel like there, anyone was going to do them, and even if they did them, it wouldn't really matter. Like mm -hmm. we'd save like you know two percent for some Salesforce that was marketing some kind of enterprise service. Like it just completely just didn't feel like it had any relevance to anything. And um, when you when you build products for people to use, and you build companies that that create those products, it's super rewarding. It's just you just see the impact of your action all the time. So that part's really good. Um, it's, it's, but there's also some negatives, and it is—it's um, really like it can be really wearying and hard, and it's a roller coaster and it's intense. And um, I think that's one of the biggest things that entrepreneurs need to learn is just like how to their sort of personal and social um, self-regulation and conduct to just deal with it. Because if you can't survive it, then yeah, then you you just can't do it. Last two questions, moving to the union of, of, of business and art here, because you're, the building you developed in, in 2008, in, uh, which, I, which I actually biked by the other day and, and actually oh, cool. looked at just co totally coincidentally before oh, cool. I had the, the uh, you know, knew, you were, knew you had done this. Um, uh, it, it's, I mean, there is a real artistic quality to it. I mean, it, it, it looks like a like a uh, Richard Serra, um, uh, you know, kind of yeah, bron thanks, bronzing yeah. on the outside. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, it's uh, Corten steel. I mean, the architect that we worked with was was awesome, and his mandate was to make something pretty dope. And we, you know, worked together a lot in uh, in, in some of those ideas. Like, I had all these little snippets of things. Um, yeah, we wanted to make something amazing. But in, in trying to build something that was amazing, I mean, was there was there a was there a willingness to to sacrifice profit? It was like was was there was there artistic goal? I mean, I, I'm sure I'm sure it was. Yeah, still, oh. still did fine on it. But were well, you like, my idea, I thought that we it would be more valuable because we made something great, and I think I was probably wrong. I probably should have made like a shit box, and it would have made more money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you got the heart of, you got the heart of my question for me there. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Last question then. Um, Maybe in the long run it'll turn out that we we we, we did much better than I thought. But I, are, are, I they, did are learn. they rental units? Or are they are they? Uh, yeah, we didn't sell anything yet. Yeah. Oh, so eventually we'll sell some. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So for the time being, like, yeah, it rents well. People like it. It attracts certain people. But it it is you know when you make something really amazing, you do need to present it to people that want things that are amazing. And so. That's it, just a, that's just part of it, you know. Like, um, so not everyone likes our building, 
Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it's weird. What's with this? What's with that? And it's like, all right, well, screw you. Get out of here. I don't want you here. And right. that, that actually is, it's, you know, that it, it took uh, some meditation to realize that. It's not like everybody will look at it. And the, when they launched the iPhone, there was great acclaim, but they only sold like a million in the first year. It's not like... It, right. Right. No, I, I, It takes I, some fortitude. That, that it was what I mean. It's like vision. There's more to bringing your vision to reality than just making your vision because you have to now convert the world is I, what happens after. My brothers, my, my sister and my brother-in-law are both architects. And so I, I, like, I find myself un, sometimes uncertain of a building, but at least appreciative of the effort to try something that is, that is different. You know? and, mm. and so I'm like, I just look at something sometimes and I'm like, you know what? I, I don't even know, but but like, well done. You know, sort of. It's, it's sort of a <laughs> well, strange thought. But in your case, actually, I did. I did quite. I thought it was inter- really interesting. I like the 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 exterior facade for sure. Um, last question: What's what's the the photo you have in the moment? How do, two questions? What is the photo of, and how does one yeah. enter it into the permanent, like, a permanent collection? Just like, yeah, I got this cool picture. I'll just send it to like the MoMA and see if they accept it. Yeah, it was super random. The uh, picture is a picture of a. Um, a, uh, like a light, a li- uh, what are they called again? A lamp, a lamp post in uh, in Central Park, and I took it on uh, a digital camera, early days of digital cameras, and I edited it on my computer, and I copied and pasted the same lamp post twice in the image. So there were these two lamp posts that are like weirdly close together, and they look a little bit like the twin towers. And after uh, 9/11, there was a show at MoMA where they were like. Hey, give us some pictures. It's like a monument to the, you know, disaster. We'll like have everybody who wants to. And so somebody mentioned it to me. I was like, okay, I'll, you can take this one. They were like at my house, and they were going to go to mom. So I was like, why don't you take this? One? And um, uh, they kept some of the pictures that were featured in media. So weirdly, like that picture somehow was like on TV because like people that came and did reviews of the show like showed it. And so they kept some of the pictures, and that mine, my own was one of them. So it's not like. I don't think it's like the front door that artists dream of for like being in, in the permanent collection. But somehow, magically, I'm in some you know, some archive somewhere. Well, that's that's a, certainly another story that no one's ever told on the podcast, and and, and, and very interesting. Um, well, I want to really thank you for being here. It's been it's been truly, uh, really eye-opening. Uh, entrepreneurial biography, as we sometimes call them on the show. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your story. It was really a pleasure. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 